Welcome to the 12th episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the subterranean chamber into which all new planning information is fed, and extract the key things you need to know. The podcast is called Room 106 after Room 101, the place in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We are suggesting that for ourselves and for some of our audience, there can be a sense of foreboding about digesting the latest developments in the sector. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101, in honour of the tortuous 106 negotiations that can take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. So, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight or so, and why they might be important for you. We'll explore the widespread media reports that next month's Queen's speech will announce the replacement of negotiated Section 106 developer contributions with a flat rate levy. We'll examine the planning implications of the government's proposals to increase the country's energy self-sufficiency. And we'll report on two councils that have asked the planning inspectorate to confirm their housing land supply positions for a year. I'll also be highlighting one of the quirkiest stories from the past two weeks. Finally, in the deep dive section, I'll be talking to regular planning correspondent Ben Cochin about a court ruling that seems likely to give councils broader grounds to refuse applications for upwards residential extensions through permitted development rights. By the end of the show, you should know enough to minimise social anxiety at any planning gathering. So, time to bite the bullet. Ready to go in? I guess we must. Well, here we are yet again in room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. It's fuller than ever. Yep, the news just keeps pouring in, bank holiday or no bank holiday. So, what stood out for you in the past fortnight? My first story is the latest on the government's proposals to replace the current developer contribution system, which involves both Section 106 planning gain agreements and the community infrastructure levy, with the new infrastructure levy. According to national newspaper reports, these proposals to introduce a new infrastructure levy will be included in the Queen's speech next month. Reports in Saturday's Telegraph said that Section 106 agreements will be scrapped and replaced with what it calls a consolidated infrastructure levy, which would charge developers a fee set as a proportion of the value of their housing project. It said the money generated would then be spent by councils themselves, though it's not clear if councils will be able to use the money however they want to, or if they'll be required to earmark it for projects such as homes, schools, roads and GP surgeries. It also said that a formal consultation on the measure could be launched within weeks. OK, just to be clear, this is the Telegraph reporting this. Has the government confirmed anything about these reports? It hasn't officially confirmed anything, no. It declined to comment on what it called speculation when we asked them. But what has Gove or what has the government previously said about replacing Section 106 and, and, uh, and the community infrastructure levy? So the idea was first proposed in the Planning White paper back in the summer of 2020, although a number of other measures in that paper have now been dropped. The White paper proposed replacing the community infrastructure levy or SIL with a new infrastructure levy that would be nationally set, value-based and a flat rate charged it would be equal to a fixed proportion of the development's value to be levied on the scheme's completion. 
SIL, in contrast, is payable when construction of that scheme begins. And this new infrastructure levy was intended to deliver more of the infrastructure that existing or new communities require by capturing a greater share of the uplifting land value that comes with development. And as well as replacing SIL, it also promised to sweep away the uh, Section 106 planning gain agreements, which are currently negotiated between planners and developers on a case-by-case basis. And instead, it aimed to give local authorities greater powers to determine how developer contributions are used. And it also promised to increase provision of affordable housing, which it said would be kept at at least current levels. And there had been speculation last year the government might be going cold on the levy proposal, as it has done on many of the other planning white paper measures. But then the levelling up white paper, which was published in early March, included a commitment to introduce it. It said the levy would enable local authorities to capture value from development more efficiently, securing the affordable housing and infrastructure that communities need. And since those original planning white paper ideas, am I right in thinking that the the government has sort of fine tuned the ideas in, in some way? So it's not going to be it's not going to be nationally set anymore. It's going to be locally set. And uh, and, and has there been some talk of that? Yes. So last summer, Robert Jenrick, the former housing secretary, announced that the government had tweaked the proposals quite significantly so that the the levy would be locally set rather than national flat rate. And that had been quite a a big concern when the proposals were first announced from um, various people in the sector about the the difficulties of having a nationally set charge given the the regional differences in um, land values. Okay, so we, we still don't know exactly what form the government is going to introduce this in and but what have commentators said about the pros and cons of the sort of the general idea the thrust of the idea of bundling up uh SIL and section 106 into one new infrastructure levy well initially there were many concerns from councils and housing associations about how the new levy would provide affordable housing despite this promise in the planning white paper and we looked at this again in depth last month And there are still a lot of question marks and concerns about how the new levy will provide affordable housing, which is currently delivered by the planning system via Section 106 agreements. And in particular, there were concerns about how affordable housing will be delivered on site by the developer, which tends to be the preference of local authorities. So insiders that we spoke to for our article last month told us that ministers are still considering ways that the levy could boost affordable housing delivery. However, one commentator said that the uh, Secretary of State is keen to increase the provision of social housing. And he said that they were looking at what what he called a formulaic provision, which would be biased towards affordable housing rather than infrastructure. And he said this could give some comfort to those who are concerned about the levy negatively impacting on affordable housing provision. Well, we'll wait to see what emerges. But um, I uh, I guess interesting to see that somebody is obviously talking to um uh, i'm not quite sure where these where these stories came from i think the um the impression you get is this may be somebody in um one of the developers sort of professional bodies um uh, speaking to the telegraph but interesting to hear that it's um that it's being penciled in for the queen's speech possibly as part of the uh, the promised leveling up and, and regeneration bill yes that's right at the end of last month, the um, Housing Minister, Stuart Andrew, hinted at what's been announced in the uh, papers over the weekend when he told MPs in the House of Commons that details of the legislative vehicle that would deliver these changes to the developer contribution system would be revealed in a couple of weeks. And at the same time, he confirmed that the government plans to introduce its new infrastructure levy, replacing both SIL and the Section 106 system. So when did he say this would happen in a couple of weeks? 
So he was speaking at the end of last month and he said he hoped to reveal more details of how the government would or what laws the government would be using to introduce the um, these changes. So they're already slightly behind on that on that bit of the schedule, but um, maybe I guess another indication that they certainly want to get something out very soon. Yeah. Great. Okay. What else in the last fortnight? So one of the biggest announcements from the government in terms of policy changes has been their new energy security strategy, which was announced in light of the energy crisis with the um, the war in Ukraine. Okay. And this has got a sort of planning relevance, I, I take it? Yes, there are a number of planning-related proposals in the strategy. So it's published by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy earlier this month. And some of the key planning-related changes in there are that they've promised a review of planning rules aiming to make it easier for households to install energy-efficient measures. The strategy states that practical planning barriers for those looking to cut the energy used in their homes, such as installing improved glazing, will be reviewed. The government has also pledged to speed up determination times for offshore wind projects, so reducing consent times from up to four years down to one year. It also said that priority offshore wind projects could benefit from a fast-track consenting route where quality standards are met. And this would involve amending the Planning Act 2008, which created the um, major infrastructure consenting regime to allow secretaries of state to set shorter examination timescales. The government will also consult on amending planning rules for ground-mounted solar energy generation. It said that the government is seeking to strengthen policy in favour of development on non-protected land, while simultaneously ensuring communities continue to have a say and environmental protections remain in place. Also on solar development, it promised radically simplified planning processes for installing rooftop solar panels with a consultation on the relevant permitted development rights. The strategy also said the government would support co-located solar projects, which are developed alongside other functions such as agriculture, onshore wind or storage. And this, it says, is to maximise the efficiency of land use. And finally, it promised to update national policy statements for renewable projects to reflect the importance of energy security and net zero. And these are going to be refreshed by the end of 2023, the document says in order to increase certainty for the planning inspectorate, developers and other stakeholders and to speed up delivery. Okay, so that's um, a lot of change on a lot of fronts promised by this uh, by this document. Yes, that's right. Am I right in thinking that it also talks about habitats regulation assessments? Yes, it promised to review how habitat regulation assessments are carried out to what it calls cut reams of paperwork. So these assessments are required for projects that are in or near to protected habitat sites in order to see if these sites might be damaged by the development and then examine how that damage could be avoided or mitigated. And in the strategy, it said this review would apply to projects that are the subject of applications submitted from late 2023. OK, that's interesting. And it also, without specifically referring to planning measures in relation to these technologies, it does talk about um, government ambitions with regard to nuclear and shale gas which I guess will have implications for planners and the planning system in coming years. Is that right? Yes. At the same time as the strategy was published, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, commissioned a review of shale gas extraction. Back in November 2019, the government ended its support for so-called fracking in England due to what it calls the basis of new scientific analysis. The business secretary asked the British Geological Society to consider the latest scientific evidence on seismicity, which 
relates to earthquakes. And our readers will probably remember there was a lot of controversy when um, fracking first emerged about um, its link with um, earthquakes in the local area. The strategy says the government has pledged to remain open-minded about shale gas extraction. And in addition, it's also promised to speed up the delivery of nuclear power plants. So it says it aims to build one new power plant every year for eight years, rather than the current rate of every decade. Okay. One thing we've not talked about is onshore wind. What does it say about that? Well, there had been speculation in the weeks before the strategy that the government was considering easing planning rules in England for onshore wind. Since 2015, such projects need to show local support before permission can be granted by councils, which has virtually prevented any from going ahead. However, the strategy confirms there will be no easing of planning rules, and it says this is in recognition of the range of views on such projects. According to national newspaper reports at the time, this was due to opposition in the Cabinet and on the Tory backbenches due to the the, uh, visual impacts of uh, onshore wind farms. The strategy instead commits the government to consulting on what it calls developing local partnerships for a limited number of supportive communities that want to host such projects in return for offering sweeteners, including lower energy bills. Okay, it's funny, isn't it? There was an awful lot of talk in the papers in the sort of weeks coming up to it about uh, unleashing a sort of new generation of onshore wind and the sort of retreat from that, if if it is fair to say that's what the government was seriously considering doing at any stage. But the retreat from that seems to be absolute. Yes, it's quite reminiscent of some of the planning measures in the planning white paper where the government's suggested that it's moving in one direction, but backbench Tory MPs aren't happy with it. So it's had to um, had to retreat. Getting quicker at retreating, I guess. Yes, even before the policy is actually announced. OK, well, there is loads for planners to dig into and understand there. And a final story. This one, I guess, will have to be quite brief because we're running out of time. But um, what's your, your third choice? My third choice is a story that's got a lot of interest from our readers. And it's about the two councils that have indicated that they intend to submit an annual position statement to the planning inspectorate in a bid to confirm for a 12-month period that they have a five-year housing land supply. Okay, and who are the councils? So it's South Kesteven and Sunderland councils. And what is it that they're applying for? So they've asked the planning inspectorate to confirm their housing land supply position for a year via these documents that are called annual position statements. So all our readers will know that under national policy, councils have to be able to show five years' worth of deliverable housing sites or else their housing supply policies are rendered out of date and they are vulnerable to speculative applications. And these annual position statements are studied by planning inspectors who decide whether they agree with the council's calculations. And if they find that their positions are more than five years, then no developer can challenge that figure at appeal. Okay, so why do you think these two councils might be applying? Well, clearly they both want to avoid their housing land supply positions being challenged at appeal. Both councils submitted these APS documents last year and both had them confirmed. They've both got fairly marginal housing land supply positions. According to our housing land supply index, South Kesteven's position is 5.22 years and Sunderland's is 5.5 years. So these are the kinds of authorities where they're more vulnerable to that figure dipping below the five-year threshold if some sites are removed from the future pipeline of deliverable housing land. Okay, well, many thanks for that, John. And of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. And that's where you can also find our housing land supply index, the uh, the thing that John mentioned just now.
But John, I'm going to have to leave you in this whirlwind of planning information because now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Well, I've now got to go to the part of Room 106 where the legal decisions are kept. And in all the vast caverns in this huge subterranean chamber, there's possibly none bigger than the legal section. So I'm just about to lower myself into this space. And I think I can see a figure somewhere down in the gloom who's clearly been pouring through much of this. Am I right in seeing... Is that, uh, is that Ben? Yeah, I'm here, surrounded by papers and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Ben Cochin, our regular correspondent on Planning Magazine. Delighted that you're charged with looking at this one and not me. You've been studying a, a court ruling which uh, many experts have been saying is going to give councils a bit more scope to turn down residential upward extensions through uh, permitted development, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It, it concerns a permitted development right that was introduced August last, 2020. Upward extensions up to two storeys above the original height of the building could go ahead without having to make a planning application. And it could be on a terraced house, it could be on a standalone house or even an industrial building. And the idea was is that councils really had very few grounds to turn down an application from a developer for something called prior approval. So basically developers have to go to a council and say, I've got this scheme, it conforms with permitted development rights, can I just confirm that that's the case and get, you can give me prior approval? So what, what factors do councils have to consider whether, when, when they make this decision about whether to grant prior approval? Well, the General Permitted Development Order, which introduced this, uh, sets out really just three or four grounds by which they can be turned down. Uh, they are specifically overlooking privacy, loss of light and the external appearance of the dwelling house including the design, architectural features of the principal elevation and any side of elevation which fronts a highway. The most important thing was that it sets out that it's about any impact on the adjoining building. Okay. So the claimants were suggesting, as I understand it, that the council had been sort of interpreting that aspect of the, of the rules too narrowly. Is that right? Too broadly, I would have to say. Basically, well, I think it's probably good to look at these examples because they actually explain how the argument's gone. The challenge concerned in the High Court concerned three schemes which local authorities had turned down and inspectors had rejected on appeal. The claimants argued uh, at the High Court the inspectors had rejected the schemes because they acted ultra vires in their approach to deciding the appeals. They'd gone outside the scope of the grounds by which an application for our approval could be refused. Oh, OK. Right. I get it. So I got it the wrong way around. So they, they thought that the decision had taken too broad a view of what an adjoining building was. Exactly. For example, in one of the cases, the inspector had commented that the proposal would give the terrace an uneven profile and would have a disruptive effect on the open aspect of the street scheme. In another, the inspector dismissed the appeal on the grounds of how the proposal will be seen in relation to neighbouring buildings and the wider street scene. So what we're looking at here is, is the fact that it's not just 
the building, what it looks like. It's not about how it affects the immediately neighbouring building. It's how the upward extension affects the street as a whole. Okay, so in at least a couple of these instances, the inspectors were one of the factors that turn them against the, um, the the proposal was the impact on the broader streetscape. Absolutely. So how does the judgment clarify the considerations that decision makers are allowed to take into account when dealing with these sorts of applications? Well, you see, it's interesting when you talk to different local authorities, they're all interpreting the regulations differently. And some authorities are taking a very literal interpretation. So they were absolutely just looking at the impact of the adjoining building. And they they generally assumed, well, we've got very few grounds to turn them down. So we've got to accept this prior approval. They might not like the schemes, but they found that they didn't. They considered they did not have grounds to reject them. Others, like in these three cases, two were in Harringay and one was in Broxbourne in Hertfordshire they took a much wider view of the impact and hence they turned them down. So what happens now, I think, is that quite a lot of authorities will be emboldened. They will not take this view, well, we've got very few grounds to turn down these prior approval applications. We can take a greater look at the impact. So they will be emboldened to turn them down if they think the impact will be severe on a whole street, might be a square. Who knows how you can look at the impact? Okay, that's that's really interesting. I think I'm right in saying that the one key question that the um, the judge ruled on was the question of what was meant by adjoining, and whether adjoining just meant a property that was contiguous to the property for which the extension was being proposed, and. And contiguous is one of those planning words that I always have to look up, but I, I, I believe it, it means literally bordering on or, or, or touching. Is that right, that the maybe the claimants were trying to say that these considerations should be restricted to the, whether a building that was literally bordering or touching the building in question, that it should only be those kind of contiguous buildings that would be... Um, the impact on them that was the only thing that should be considered. And um, the judge decisively ruled against that. Is that is that right? Absolutely. No, no. He, he considered that these schemes should not be considered in such a tight little vacuum of the, the, the building itself and what it looked like and the impact on the immediate neighbour. No, he was he was very definite that it should be the wider streetscape. Now, of course, it's going to be quite difficult for councils to actually take a particularly wide view. These are all relatively small extensions, you know, two stories. That Actually, some of them are sort of flat. So you might get four flats built above on two stories above a block, or even actually more. Some of the schemes are quite big, though they're only two stories. So how they'll define impact on this wide area is going to be quite difficult and it's not going to be easy. Did the judgment clarify, you know, if adjoining premises or neighbouring premises, if they're not just premises that immediately adjoin the property in question, how do you define what adjoining properties or neighbouring properties are? No, and, and I think this is going to be one of the points and there is some hope that perhaps government might give some sort of guidance so that councils will know how to, and I suppose developers will know how to draw up 
decent applications that show how it, it will work in the neighbourhood, in the street, in the terrace, whatever it is. So do we know anything about how this ruling is affecting the way that councils consider these applications? Well, clearly it's, it is early days. The judgment only came out in early March. So I suspect, and there was one person I spoke to who said, well, they walked into a room with an, with an application and what did the council ask them first about? This judgment and the issue of design of the schemes that they were bringing with them. So it's having an immediate effect. So developers are going to have to spend a bit more time looking at the design, looking at the impacts, maybe looking at right-to-light issues a little bit more extensively because of this judgment. So this may make life slightly tougher for developers to make use of this route. I mean, what do we know about how easy this this sort of permitted development right is to use anyway? I mean, up to now, what kind of proportion of these applications have been approved? Well, that's an interesting question, Richard. You know, when this PDR was introduced, and there were other PDRs, possibly even more controversial, it was the idea that it would make it very easy for developers to come in and boost the housing supply, and it would be straightforward. Well, it hasn't proved like that. Uh, Since August 2020, there's been about a 50% prior approval rate. So I think there have been about 600 applications so far, and quite a few have been turned down. So about half of them have have been turned down? Yeah, yeah. Only 80 actually went to appeal. And there's been a higher approval rate with inspectors, around 60% approved on appeal. So quite a lot of the inspectors have interpreted the regulations pretty tightly. That's interesting. There's not a, you know, quite a, um, a, you know, a 50-50 sort of um, success rate uh, on original application, but a higher success rate of appeal so far. But maybe this is going to make it a bit harder on, uh, on both fronts. I think what's going to be quite interesting is is that the application process under PDR for this one is likely to be more burdensome now. And what, what some people have said to me is that, well, you know, what's the point of going down PDR? Might be better to go, do a formal planning application, a bit more predictable and a trusted process that people understand. This this PDR process is a bit unpredictable and unreliable, so go down the trusted route so they know it. Okay, Ben, well, uh, thank you very much indeed for that. Is there anything else to add? Oh, Richard, I I think we should be aware that the applicant has lodged an appeal to go to the Court of Appeal on this. So it's not all done and dusted yet. The application hasn't yet been uh, permitted. So we don't know if the appeal will actually be heard. But if it does, it's probably going to take six months before that, that will happen. So watch this space. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Ben, thank you very much for that. While I can still see the uh, the end of the rope sort of swinging above me, I think I'm going to try and hoist myself out of here. Um, I, I, I suspect you may have a, a few more uh, cases to thumb through, but um, I hope you can get out before the Court of Appeal result comes in and see you soon, I hope. Thank you, Richard. Yes, I'll, I'll find my way out eventually, I'm sure. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice. 
the story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being a portentous planning issue. Ah, there he is. Hello, Richard. Hi, John. What have you got for us in this edition? Well, we don't often feature play reviews in planning, but last week we covered a new play by David Hare about a legendary US town planner and public official, Robert Moses, who planned and designed expressways and parkways in and around New York between the 1920s and 1960s. And the review was written by our columnist, Graham Bell. So Moses was a controversial figure whose decisions favoured highways over public transports. And Graham Bell writes that in his belief in providing for the car, Moses was messianic, but also chimed with the times. And this was very much the era of top-down planning in both the States and in the UK. One key part of the drama concerns Moses' plan to bisect a, a park in New York, Washington Square Park, in the 1950s with Rhodes. And then he's challenged by a planning activist and writer, Jane Jacobs, who was very much about community engagement and was ahead of her time. And who's the star of the show? Robert Moses is played by Oscar winner Ray Fiennes. I have to say, this one snuck up on us a bit, and it's a fantastic, really interesting review written by uh, by Graham. But if you told us two months ago that there was going to be a play on the West End stage with a town planner in a starring role, and uh, that town planner would be played by Ray Fiennes, I, I think we would have been surprised, to say the least. Yes, that's right. Fantastic. OK, well, um, thank you very much, John. I think our work here is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink Audio and thanks for listening. Goodbye.